0: This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt.
1: Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. In this episode, we'll look at the legacy of Senator John McCain, war hero, senator, and presidential candidate. We'll get Steve's thoughts and reflections on the passing of an American statesman and who, if anyone, in the Republican Party will take up McCain's fight against racism, tribalism and isolationism. John McCain spent more than six decades in the service of his country. By his own admission, he was far from perfect, but few fellow Americans have such a record of dedication. He tried to live up to the ideals of duty, honor and country. Steve, you had the honor and privilege to work on John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign. What's your favorite memory of John McCain?
0: McCain had taken to calling Mark McKinnon, one of the media strategists on the on the campaign, he assigned us ranks, we were corporals. McKinnon and Schmidt, and after the comeback and the win in New Hampshire, his son Doug uh, suggested that we be commissioned, that we be made officers, that we be given battlefield commissions and, and promoted, and McCain. Came back and said, absolutely not. Those two aren't officer material, but did agree that we would be promoted to sergeant. And we in that campaign went next to Michigan, where we got crushed by Mitt Romney. First day in the state, McCain goes out and he tells the auto workers in Detroit that their jobs aren't coming back. And it was it was downhill from there. And in the morning, believe we were in Traverse City, Michigan. It was snowing. McCain looked at me and he said, I don't have a good feeling about this because I think turnout's going to be low. I said, no. I said, these are hardy people up here. Don't worry about it. And um, we went with the national press in tow to a polling station on a deserted street. And there was one old lady who was present and she she came across the street, grabbed him by the hand with the national press following him, took him on a tour of her house, which was a funeral home. And not a good omen for the primary. And I'll never forget McCain getting back on the bus and looking at McKinnon and I. And he goes, you're both fucking demoted back to corporal.
1: Campaigns are a real grind. And staff get to know their candidates very well on a very personal level, the good, the bad. So tell us about the John McCain that you got to know. And what would surprise people about him?
0: Well, it could be wickedly funny. He's the most well-read person I've ever, I've ever met. He's a voracious reader. But not just of nonfiction and history, but of literature, and uh, he loved it. He, he enjoyed it. Was was reading constantly, and um, it was just indefatigable. It's an exhausting, brutal process, and one step in front of the other. You know, a man always in motion. I had a very complicated relationship with with John McCain. It was for a period of a couple years, one of the most intense and intimate relationships I'll ever have. And if I live to be 120, I'm not sure I'll ever have him quite figured out. Our relationship shattered in 2009 because of my criticism of Sarah Palin and Palinism and the rise of the Tea Party movement and the populism and the nationalism that's been metastasizing in this country for the last 10 years. And I try to warn about it for 10 years to the best of my ability. And the consequence for that, for me personally, that was the most painful was the loss of that relationship. And the irony of it was that the person more than any other who would be a role model for doing what you think is the right thing to do, damn the consequences, is the person with whom the consequence for me was a loss of that relationship. But like many people, who have uh, feuded with John McCain, in the end, we were reconciled. And the last conversation I had with him, uh, he said, I love you, boy. And there was nothing left unsaid between us. And I'll I'll always be grateful for that. There will never be in our lifetimes again somebody like John McCain. This is one of the most storied military families. His father is the commander in chief of Pacific forces. His son is shot down. The son and grandson of four-star admirals. The valor he displayed in prison. The choice he made to maintain his honor and the honor of the United States Navy. His service in the Senate. He, he was a complicated guy with big flaws and imperfections. But even the flaws were magnificent because they were so big. He was, in a lot of ways, the most alive person I've ever known. And Arnold Schwarzenegger, I love Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, he's great. One of the funniest, smartest, most, most brilliant people. And you look at the movies, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a great guy, but he's not an action hero in real life. John McCain was an action hero in real life. And that life was as big a life that you could possibly think of. It spanned from 1936 to 2018. And he wrote a big chapter in America's political history over these last 36 years of service.
1: This is a personal theory and very oversimplified, but I think there's some truth to it. So I want to ask you how you think it might apply to John McCain or not, that people who survive a great tragedy and trauma have a choice when they're coming out of it, that they can dwell on it and become more reclusive, be bitter, not really move beyond it, or that they can channel it into a mission in the next phase of their life, building from that loss. And do you think that's true of John McCain and his survival story?
0: And I moved on, as President Bush pointed out in the eulogy, is how McCain ended one of his books. And I think that's what he did. His life was devoted in service to the country, all but a few months of it when he was a, when he was a congressional candidate. And, you know, I don't think he dwelled in bitterness uh, about his captivity, and i and I think that's evidenced by the reconciliation between Vietnam and the United States that he helped lead during Bill Clinton's presidencies with John Kerry.
1: Did you ever talk to John McCain about his time in the Hanoi Hilton, or was it just one of those topics as a staffer that you just knew it was too personal and you couldn't go there?
0: He talked about the story in the context of what happened, but never heard him talk about how he felt about it. Well, I'll say one story. We ran a campaign ad that showed John McCain. There's a picture. It's pretty famous. The interview done by French media days after capture in the in the hospital bed where he gives his name, rank, and, and serial number. And, and this ad was a powerful ad in the 2008 campaign and, and did a lot of good. As we were coming back in, in New Hampshire, as we started to lay out the story under the campaign's motto, country first. And he went bananas. He on a one to ten scale, that we put that on air, he was pissed off at about a about a fifteen. He hated the use of that story for a political purpose. And we had a huge disagreement over it. And I, and I told him basically, I said, Listen, too bad. I said that that story belongs to the country the moment you volunteer and say, I announced my candidacy for president of the United States today, that this aspect of your life can't be hidden. It's formative to who you are. People not only have a right to know, it's necessary for them to know. And, and you forfeited any opportunity to avoid that when, when you became a candidate. But he, he did not like the use of, you know, the service. And one of the things that nobody commented on on Saturday is that the boys um, in uniform at the at the funeral, but certainly he didn't want them. They were both active duty in the campaign, didn't want them on the stage, didn't want them in uniform, you know, thought it was completely inappropriate. And he, over this last year, when you, when you look at Donald Trump's politicization of the military— Going to places like the CIA, Clandestine Service Memorial, talking about his crowd sizes. John McCain would have been been affronted mightily by that. Uh, He was a person who understood service, but also the dignity of the institutions that we serve in this country.
1: Steve, a clip that's really gone viral has been John McCain speaking with a woman in Minnesota who asked him a question about Barack Obama. Let's listen to that.
2: I got to ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I I, I have read about him and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No? No, ma'am. No, 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 ma'am. He's a... He's a he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. Thank you.
1: After that happened, what did Senator John McCain say about it in private? Did he worry about the political calculation over the moral calculation?
0: This was a horrible, horrible part of the campaign because we were in the space where we knew for sure that we were going to lose, that we had no hope of winning. Um, This was after the financial collapse of September 15. Uh, President Bush's approval numbers went into the 20s. The right track number in the country, which is always an important gauge, had dropped to 6%. Uh, Sarah Palin had gone completely off off the rails and wasn't responding to any controls from the campaign headquarters, and the crowds, as the loss was becoming more obvious, were becoming angrier. And any anytime John McCain went out and said Barack Obama's name by way of criticism, of highlighting a difference, the crowds would start to boo. And as we got into this late portion of the campaign, over the course of a couple of days, you would hear the n word shouted out in some of the larger crowds. It, it was getting ugly. We were appalled by it. We were we were disgusted by it. And we had said to John sometime earlier that we're, we're not going to win. We need to end this on a on a high note. We need to begin to prepare the country to get behind the new president to get him off to a good start that that we wanted to finish with dignity and that basically when you tell a candidate that the optics are so bad, you can't say your opponent's name. You really, you can't fight anymore effectively in a political campaign. So we were at that moment of realization when this happened and I was there and I was just incredibly proud that in this moment of stress and tension he reacted on instinct, and at his best, that's who he was, right? That presidential campaigns in a lot of ways are character tests. They reveal you for who you are. Now, in that moment, John McCain was revealed, and it's good that 10 years later, we can look back and I think even opponents can see special qualities of his of his character from that exchange. But He had no tolerance for the cruelty of bigotry and racism. Didn't like it. He respected Barack Obama, and that's why he was there.
1: Knowing John McCain the way that you did and having a front row seat to the 2008 campaign, what do you think was John McCain's biggest regret about the campaign?
0: I mean, I think he obviously regretted picking uh, Sarah Palin as the vice presidential candidate all but said so in the in the last book but you know the the reality is is that the campaign made a made a reckless decision the the vetting process was a failure and a joke and the result was someone who had no business being at the top of a presidential ticket was put forward and was and was nominated and you know I think we all regretted it
1: in his final months Senator John McCain personally requested that his two former political rivals for the highest office of our land, Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama, he requested that they speak at his funeral. You remember those campaigns. You remember how nasty and bitter and hard-fought it could be. What does that tell you about John McCain that he asked Barack Obama and George W. Bush to speak at his funeral?
0: I think the joke was that Figured out how to get those two guys saying good stuff about him, right? Um, you know, look, he those were the last two presidents, but they represented, despite severe disagreements on policy matters, but they were they were both of those men or fidelitous to the ideas and ideals of the country, to the greatness of the country, to the U.S. led liberal global order that emerged out of the Second World War that is kept the peace and and prosperity in the world for the last 70 years. And and I think that it was purposeful, it was intentional, and it was a stunning rebuke to the vile president uh, that inhabits their former offices.
1: Here's what President Bush had to say.
2: He respected the dignity inherent in every life, a dignity that does not stop at borders and cannot be erased by dictators. Perhaps above all, John detested the abuse of power, could not abide bigots and swaggering despots. There was something deep inside him that made him stand up for the little guy, to speak for forgotten people in forgotten places.
1: Now, I admit that I'm biased, but I thought that George W. Bush was all class, all the way. Steve, what were you thinking when you heard that eulogy?
0: Well, I thought... President Bush was just incredible. Of course, seeing George W. Bush get up behind the podium reminds one of the National Cathedral address in the days after uh, September 11th, when he rose into the presidency, uh, in my view, and one of the great speeches, most important speeches, I think, ever delivered by an American president, a beautiful, beautiful address. And uh, he equaled that on Saturday. And this was a absolute direct rebuke. I mean, the things that are happening in this country are happening for real. This administration has torn six month olds away from breastfeeding moms and put them in baby internment camps. The dignity inherent in every life, a dignity that does not stop at borders and cannot be erased by dictators. Uh, He's talking about Donald Trump. He's talking about his racism and his vile cruelty. Uh, When he talks about John detested the abuse of power, he's talking about this crooked administration. When he said he could not abide bigots and swaggering despots, he's talking about Donald J. Trump. And so it was a stunning and powerful repudiation of the smallness, the meanness, the vileness that exists in the nation at this, at this hour. And what I've called this is the coalition of the decent. You saw Republicans, you saw Democrats, you saw people who believe in America celebrate yesterday a life of service to the country, but the ideas and ideals that animated that service.
1: Let's listen to President Obama.
0: But for all our differences, for all the times we sparred.
3: I never tried to hide, and I think John came to understand, the long-standing admiration that I had for him. John understood, as JFK understood, as Ronald Reagan understood, that part of what makes our country great is that our membership is based not on our bloodline, not on what we look like, what our last names are. It's not based on where our parents or grandparents came from or how recently they arrived, but on adherence to a common creed that all of us are created equal, endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights.
1: Steve, having worked on the campaign that Barack Obama won, what does it say about John McCain that his former rival was able to give him such high praise?
0: I look back on that race now with 10 years hindsight from the perspective of of this moment. And it was a tough race. But the reality is that no matter who won that election, and it turned out to be Barack Obama, the country wasn't going to lose. And I think that they had respect for each other as opponents. I think they had a good relationship when they were both in the Senate And I think that, as Barack Obama said, he enjoyed the quiet moments alone with John McCain, uh, who would be the first to tell you when he disagreed with you on something. I liked it when Barack Obama connected John Kennedy uh, to Ronald Reagan, and it was an important moment uh, to hear in the country the invocation of these two American icons, one Democrat, one Republican as being unified and fidelitous to the ideas and ideals of the country. And what President Obama talked about are, are the most radical, most important words ever put to paper by the mind of man. And that's the American creed, this idea that we are all created equal, endowed by our creator with inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The, the country has always been imperfect, because it's made up of imperfect, fallible human beings. But the story of America is that over time, we have moved closer and closer to achieving that idea and ideal. It it goes to the brilliance of Martin Luther King's last speech when he talks about how he's been to the mountaintop. He sees a just society on the horizon. He doesn't tell us when. The work of America is never done. And that's what Barack Obama was saying yesterday. And I have a strong belief. And I know that John McCain shared this belief that as Americans, we're all connected to each other through the generations. And so John McCain's life of service to America has concluded. His life is over. But the work of building a more just America continues on and is the duty of citizenship for everybody.
1: Steve, I've been a little conflicted over all of the media scrutiny on President Trump and his slights to John McCain in death. And it almost feels like there is such an oversaturation of Trump news that everything, even John McCain's death, becomes about Trump. And I know that the way Trump has behaved is horrible and I don't like it one bit and it's disrespectful. But at the same time, I do really absolutely do not have any expectation of him behaving like a classy individual suddenly uh, and changing. What do you think John McCain would make over all of the back and forth over his funeral recognition by President Trump?
0: Well, I think Donald Trump looked low and classless last week, which probably would have made John McCain happy. But look, John McCain famously said, a a fight not joined is a fight not enjoyed, and that the occasion of his funeral would instigate one last fight. With all the attention on him, I think he's looking down with a big smile on his face.
1: In the aftermath of Senator McCain's passing, we've really heard a lot of nostalgia from different political quarters for John McCain and his ability to cross the aisle, his ability to look past ideology and focus on the greater good. We've seen a lot of nostalgia for a return to that, but I'm at a loss as to who is necessarily going to be able to fill the mantle. Who do you think has an opportunity to fill the vacuum left by John McCain's passing?
0: Commentator made a point at the funeral that was John McCain suffered for five and a half years and he was not cowed. He was not broken. His spirit resisted. And you have the entire political class and nearly the whole of the Republican Party is petrified of Donald Trump's tweets. We have a season of cowardice in this country that's just shocking in the in the political class. And so all of the people that are sitting there an elected office, high elected office who've capitulated into Donald Trump's cult of personality, A, should have felt a lot of shame. But the direct answer to the question about who's going to emerge to lead, I don't know, other than to say that in America, the emergence of leaders has almost been providential. Abraham Lincoln, who, when He was elected. William Tecumseh Sherman was very critical, basically a backwoods barbarian, uneducated. He has no capacities to do the job. The country's doomed. And on Lincoln's death, what Sherman said was that I've met all of the great men of the world, the kings, the industrialists, the emperors. But I met no man who possessed more of the qualities of greatness and goodness than Abraham Lincoln. We will need a leader who can reconcile the country who can remind the American people that we are all in it together, uh, that we are one people, uh, that it is special to be an American. Uh, We will need a decent leader, uh, a leader filled with kindness and goodness and toughness. We have not just meanness and smallness in our politics. The political debate is fundamentally delusional. You look at the entitlement programs, you look at the country careening towards $30 trillion of debt, and nearly every Republican candidate for Congress wanting to serve under the Capitol Dome in a legislative body with 435 seats in a country of 325 million people. And the thing they want to do when they get there is build a wall. It's so profoundly stupid that there's almost not a word for it. And so when when we look for leadership. We want someone grounded in reality, grounded in goodness, but there's a big fight coming in this country. The the point of the service to my mind was a celebration of virtues. Love, oppositional to hate. Service, oppositional to self-interest. Sacrifice, oppositional to selfishness valor, oppositional to cowardice, all of these values and virtues that John McCain touched so many times throughout his life are completely opposite of every virtue in the heart of Donald Trump. And the virtues that define McCain's life are necessary in the life of a nation. Absent those values, the nation cannot succeed, it cannot thrive, and it will perish. And so the test, the fight, is a fight between decency and indecency, between what is right and good and what is wrong and vile. And fundamentally, that's the question that has to be put before the country. The funeral was a nice reminder For a few hours on a Saturday. But nobody should mistake that now, on Tuesday after Labor Day, that will wash away this vile cruelty we see coming out of the White House and Pennsylvania Avenue. It it will not. Trumpism must be destroyed, it has to be repudiated. And it can only be repudiated by the American people through the form of an elections process. Now, one of the things that people are wrong about when they look at a repudiation of Trumpism that the result will be a chastened Republican party, and it will not be. The result will be a crazier Republican party because what's left are people in districts that are plus thirty five plus forty percent Trump. What we saw Saturday at this funeral was a rare moment of persuasion in political life where, Essentially, you saw the two former presidents make speeches trying to persuade people to go in a different direction. We live in this era of incitement. And on Tuesday, as we move into what's going to be a very contentious and I think the most politically significant and important midterm election in the country's history, the tactics that Trump will use are incitement he will race bait, he will be mean, he will be nasty, he will be cruel, the debates will be profoundly stupid. We will see a hundred mini-Trumps echoing his vileness in campaign commercials. And then the choice for the country is going to be, do we embrace this or do we repudiate it? And there is a consequence, I think, beyond imagination if it's not repudiated.
1: This week, I'd like to let Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama have the final word.
2: For John and me, there was a personal journey, our hard-fought political history. Back in the day, he could frustrate me. And I know he'd say the same thing about me. But he also made me better. In recent years, we sometimes talk of that intense period like football players remembering a big game. In the process, rivalry melted away. In the end, I got to enjoy one of life's great gifts, the friendship of John McCain, and I'll miss him. John was, above all, a man with a code. He lived by a set of public virtues that brought strength and purpose to his life and to his country. At various points throughout his long career, John confronted policies and practices that he believed were unworthy of his country. To the face of those in authority, John McCain would insist, "We are better than this. America is better than this." John, as he was the first to tell you, was not a perfect man, but he dedicated his life to national ideals that are as perfect as men and women have yet conceived. He was motivated by a vision of America carried ever forward, up, ever upward, on the strength of its principles. He saw our country not only as a physical place or power, but as the carrier of enduring human aspirations, as an advocate for the oppressed, as a defender of the peace, as a promise unwavering, undimmed, unequal. The strength of a democracy is renewed by reaffirming the principles on which it was founded, and America somehow has always found leaders who were up to that task particularly at the time of greatest need. John was born to meet that kind of challenge, to defend and demonstrate the defining ideals of our nation. If we're ever tempted to forget who we are, to grow weary of our cause, John's voice will always come as a whisper over our shoulder. We are better than this. America is better than this. It showed his irreverence, his sense of humor,
3: A little bit of a mischievous streak. After all, what better way to get a last laugh than to make George and I say nice things about him to a national audience? (laughs) And most of all, it showed a largeness of spirit, an ability to see past differences in search of common ground. But he did understand that some principles transcend politics, that some values transcend party. He considered it part of his duty to uphold those principles and uphold those values. John cared about the institutions of self-government, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, rule of law, separation of powers, even the arcane rules and procedures of the Senate. He knew that in a nation as big and boisterous and diverse as ours, those institutions, those rules, those norms are what bind us together, that give shape and order to our common life, even when we disagree, especially when we disagree. John believed in honest argument and hearing other views. He understood that if we get in the habit of bending the truth to suit political expediency or party orthodoxy, our democracy will not work. So much of our politics, our public life, our public discourse can seem small and mean and petty, trafficking and bombast, and insult, and phony controversies, and manufactured outrage. It's a politics that pretends to be brave and tough, but in fact is born of fear. John called on us to be bigger than that. He called on us to be better than that. Today is only one day in all the days that will ever be. But what will happen in all the other days that will ever come can depend on what you do today. What better way to honor John McCain's life of service than, as best we can, follow his example to prove that the willingness To get in the arena and fight for this country is not reserved for the few. It is open to all of us, and in fact, it's demanded of all of us as citizens of this great republic. That's perhaps how we honor him best, by recognizing that there are some things bigger than party or ambition or money or fame or power, that there are some that are worth risking everything for, principles that are eternal, truths that are abiding. At his best, John showed us what that means. For that, we are all deeply in his debt. May God bless John McCain. May God bless this country he served so well.
1: Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.